So I want to rename this sermon. This often happens when I have to have a title by Friday. But um, encouraging the exorcists, parentheses, saints you do not know. Okay. This week I met a man at a funeral who flew in from Phoenix, Arizona to share some lovely words about his adopted grandmother. His grandmother had grown up in this church, was very active here in the 50s through the early 80s. She shared about how she'd welcomed him when, at age eight, he was adopted by her daughter. And the grandmother really made him part of the family. He was well-spoken, and he spoke of God and Christ Jesus just beautifully. But I could tell from some key phrases that he said that we were probably cut from slightly different theological cloth. I genuinely appreciated his words, but I could feel myself acknowledging to myself, of course, the difference between our Christian experience. He approached me after the burial, and, he, and we had a pleasant talk about God and faith, and I again found myself aware of our differences. But I tried to just talk in ways that would emphasize our commonalities. It wasn't the time or place for tension. Pleasantries would suffice. In the memorial service, though, he had mentioned his brother, and his brother also having been dearly loved by Grandma. And so I asked about him and asked where he lived. And he answered me, Seth, my brother took his life years ago. And to be honest, if I hadn't found Jesus as my personal Lord and Savior, I would have died soon after him. Jesus wrapped himself around me when I needed him most, and I've been a new man ever since. You know, I now have a wife, I have four kids, I live in a beautiful home, I have a job that I find fulfilling, and I've been able to give back to the world. It was very hard for me to hear about his brother. I felt sad. But I also had this immediate overwhelming appreciation for whatever pastor or church or ministry out there in Arizona had met this man when he was age 20 and had helped set his feet on the rock when he felt so low, so very low. And the terminology, the more evangelical way of talking about God and salvation and heaven was exactly the terminology that spoke to this man's heart. And I was so thankful for the commitment of exorcist saints I didn't know. But I almost hadn't been, right? Previously, I just judged them a bit, judged whatever group was the hands and feet and heart of Jesus that helped save him and helped rebuild his life. I have often wondered how Jesus felt on a day-to-day basis as he carried out the mission that God gave him. Jesus' role was this incredible combination of macro-messaging and micro-engagement, right? He went about proclaiming that a new day was coming, that people should turn around, turn away from despair, and turn toward this in-breaking thing from God. That was the public messaging. But after proclamation, things got personal, and the language the gospel used to describe his personal engagement with the public was, quote, he healed the sick and he cast out demons. There's like over 60 stories of demons being cast out or conversations about that in, scripture, in the New Testament. In Mark 1, yes, the very first chapter of the account of Jesus' ministry, we hear that outside Peter's mother-in-law's house, a massive line formed at sundown, The whole city, we are told, was gathered around the door, and Jesus met with people one by one, cured those who were sick with various diseases, and cast out many demons. Casting out demons, it sounds so dramatic. 
And to be fair, a few stories in the Gospels about demon possession are particularly dramatic. A man riddled with demons is freed from them when Jesus lets the demons rush from his body into a, a whole herd of pigs. Another time in synagogue, a man screamed out with a voice not his own as unclean spirits seemed to spew venom toward Jesus, convulsing the man until Jesus silenced them. But this morning, I, I want to think about demon possession and Jesus' day-to-day -day work of casting out demons in a less sci-fi superhero kind of way. Most of the time when Jesus drives out demons, it sounds like the activity happened in less dramatic ways. As I said about Peter's mother's house, there was a line of people. Jesus spent time with one person casting out demons, then moved on to the next person casting out demons, doing the same for them. Not every driving out demon story is a shocker worthy of a tale. I think I found some historical research to back up this distinction of radical exorcisms versus the more day-to-day -day description of demons. According to Dr. Robert Johnston, quote, demon possession was an almost universal belief for all peoples in the Mediterranean world of New Testament times. He wrote that scholars like Apelius and Plutarch in the years leading up to the New Testament wrote about malevolent spirits that were everywhere and caused all sorts of level of troubles for humans. Demons were responsible for most physical or mental afflictions and even responsible for heretical doctrines. So if you ever had a seriously bad idea, that was caused by a demon. <laughs> Jewish books written during that same period when Plutarch was writing, this is the intertestamental period, books like Enoch and Tobit, also focus on the prevalence of the demonic. The only difference there is that they wrestle with where these demons come from. Are they fallen angels or are they just evil spirits that are somehow outside of God's realm? So the, the synoptic gospel tradition of Matthew, Mark, and Luke are written against this backdrop of demon-heavy talk in the Greco-Roman and Jewish tradition. So with this more robust understanding of demons in everyday life, it changes the way that I at least imagine passages about demons and about addressing demons. You see, casting out demons was really important because the entire human community was constantly dealing with demons in their lives. As Jesus started to be successful in setting people free from their demons, it was like humans were able to take control of their lives again. No wonder he was so popular. And it must have been exhilarating and exhausting for him to look out on all the people in a growing line who still needed to experience this freedom. We know he needed support in his work because he started adding to his team. He selected disciples. And what power did he give them? He gave them power to proclaim the gospel, to heal the sick, and to drive out demons. In other words, he gave them the macro messaging and the skill for the micro-level engagement that he had been modeling for them. We hear that they were largely successful in their work, though sometimes they got stumped and couldn't free a person with a particular demon, but most of the time, they were successful. Today's passage comes to us from the last verses of Mark chapter 9, and it's a passage that's a continuation of the one that Pastor Stephanie preached on last week. Last week, we heard that the initial disciples of Jesus, called to heal the sick and cast out demons, had been traveling with Jesus on the road and had been arguing about who would be the greatest disciple. And Jesus' answer was to take a child 
in one of, the, uh, of one of the parents who was in the house where they were gathered and to say, you want to be great? Then care for this kid. Whoever welcomes one such child in my name welcomes me and the one who sent me. Now, Jesus doesn't say, whoever of you 12 original disciples does this will be greatest. He says, whoever, period, whoever welcomes a child or takes action like this is greatest. And I imagine there was a pause right then as the disciples contemplated what he was saying. It wasn't just the child he was saying it about. He was saying care for the most vulnerable, the most broken. Whoever does that is filled with marks of greatness. And then John sheepishly spoke up. And that's how I hear this in the passage from today. John says, teacher, with that in mind, there was someone trying to cast out demons the other day. And we tried to stop him because he was not following us. And Jesus responded saying, and again, I'm I'm interpreting it in this sheepish sort of presentation by John. Yeah, thanks, John, for fessing up. You're right to be sheepish. That was a bad move. Do not stop him. He's doing good deeds for those who are demon-possessed. And even if he doesn't have all the exact same training as you, if he's using my name and if people are getting better, if they're being set free, he's not also going to speak evil of me. Disciples, listen to me. Whoever is not against us is for us. Celebrate those exorcists, John. I need more people, not less, casting out demons. Jesus wants us to celebrate those who can cast out demons and to be glad to know that the number of empowered disciples is growing fast and some of the best work is being carried out beyond the originals. There's a story in Hebrew scriptures that, that reflects this beautifully. In the book of Numbers, chapter 11, Moses is out in the wilderness, and he finds himself unable to meet the basic needs of the people. Specifically, they are individually a mess, and their relationships with each other are a mess out there in the wilderness. It's tough. And so God told Moses that God would appoint 70 elders to assist him. And there's this whole ceremony that's set up to have this anointing in the spirit where the 70 will, will be kind of given the same abilities and powers as Moses to speak to the people. And they're all set to go, and, and suddenly somebody rushes in and, and snitches on Eldad and Medad, who were so busy serving out in the camp that they hadn't gotten to the, uh, the spirit anointing ceremony. And Joshua, who was like Moses' understudy at this point, He's ready to rush out there and punish them for insubordination. But Moses says, stop. Are you jealous for me? They too will have the Spirit poured out on them. Leave them to serve. Oh, that all the Lord's people were prophets and that the Lord would put the Spirit on them. Another moment of just this realization that we need more, not less. We need an open, a more open policy about who has the ability, the ability to serve in these ways. Friends, I think that I've sometimes failed to see the power of the gospel message about casting out demons. I've gotten lost in the dramatically different worldview offered up by the New Testament and our modern worldview. Demon possession and casting out demons, it sounds so out of the ordinary and occasional and strange. 
But this week, as I expanded my understanding of what categories of today's world might fall within demon possession frameworks of old, I found myself doing a lot of rethinking. If physical ailments and mental health struggles and isolation and impediments and addictions and extreme loneliness and inexplicable sadness and broken relationships and uncontrollable anger and paralyzing fear and twisted ideologies are all things that once fell in the demon possession category, then suddenly Jesus' call to the disciples and to every additional exorcist seems so relevant. And I do think that the term demon possession and the term casting out demons, rightly acknowledges something that sometimes we forget, that many of the things that we struggle with have a larger-than-life component to them. There are things that trap us that cannot simply be explained by neuroscience or any other science. There is real brokenness, and its roots are deeper than our understanding. And God needs lots of exorcists. Some exorcists live and move in other Christian communities who name Jesus in ways that sound a little different than our version sounds, like the Phoenix, Arizona example I gave earlier. Let's be quick to celebrate and slow to judge, for they have cast out demons and freed many. And I would say, too, that there are absolutely exorcists who cast out demons who do not explicitly name Jesus at all, but who, through their actions in the world, are implicitly in line with the name and way of Jesus. What does it mean to name Jesus? Is it just to put a stamp on it, or is it to embody some way of being? Whoever is not against us is for us. We should celebrate all exorcists who free people for life in a kingdom that reflects the love of God. Today's passage reminds us that that we are to become encouragers of a wider and wider web of those who cast out demons, even if there is different language used and a different way of going about things. The disciples had already experienced that there were some kinds of demon possession that they couldn't handle. And that actually happened in this very chapter, in chapter 9. There was a demon-possessed child, and they couldn't figure out how to get rid of that demon. I wondered, actually, if maybe there had been someone else there in the crowd that day. Maybe this other exorcist that they tried to stop who might have had a different set of skills. Would he or or she have had better success if given a chance? There's another place where we should be looking for exorcists to celebrate, and that is within our very pews. I think Jesus is inviting us today to be great by casting out demons. You are exorcists, and I rarely, I don't think I've ever named you as such. (laughs) You've been given the power to cast out demons that are riddling the lives of the people around you. Friends, I'm surrounded by a church full of people who are empowered to cast out demons, and each disciple here has a unique skill set. Some of you cast out demons that keep a child's tongue from speaking and hinder educational development. Some of you are social workers in schools, making sure that kids are heard, not just about math and science, but about their food and sleep and safety. Some of you are part of meetings in this building four times a week that speak of God as higher power and who name substances that have become as demons to you, but that can be defeated by that higher power. Some of you have tackled those demons decades ago and remain strong for yourself and others for some 
some demons seem to find bodies, new bodies, to occupy. Some of you cast out demons by creating after-school programs where the demon of loneliness is replaced by the, demon, by the reality of connections. Some of you cast out demons by listening intently to people's experiences of trauma and pain, just waiting for the brain or the spirit or some combo to come into a new order and understanding. Some of you cast out demons by creating economic opportunities for individual families. Some of you cast out demons through your teaching, helping people learn the demon-filled layers of the past that have negatively impacted their lives. Some of you build a fortress of protection for children by loving them fully and giving them exactly what they need so that they're stronger to face the demons that will surely rise up in them and around them throughout their lives. I am just touching the surface of the type of one-at-a-time demon extracting that takes place through the peoples in, this pew, in these pews. I hope you, in whatever demon casting you are engaged in, can see that your work is holy. Though we don't have to buy the first century worldview that we live in a world riddled with little demigod demon powers, we also don't have to accept a modern worldview that is void of the presence of forces of, of embodied evil either. This morning, let us claim together that the challenges in this world are complex. And it's good for us, in the name and way of Christ Jesus, to disrupt the power of evil in people's personal lives and to celebrate in a very broad way all the saints who disrupt such powers. There's one more part of the passage that I haven't touched on, and Armand read it so nicely, I, I can't just skip past it. Remember, the whole time Jesus had been talking to the disciples about greatness and responding to John's comment about the other exorcist, he has this little kid on his lap. The kid who the disciples are supposed to bless if they want to be great. And in verse 42, Jesus refers to the child again, saying, Don't put a stumbling block of any kind before one of these little ones who believe. Now, our text reads, One of these little ones who believe in me. And if it is that, there's a whole line of argument that he's actually talking about disciples and not a child. But the earliest codexes and, and earliest texts do not have in me there. I do not think this little child has to have right belief in Jesus. I think it's more that the little child has this belief in a safe world. A little child clings to its loving parent because it believes, rightly, that she is loved. And Jesus says, don't put any stumbling box to safety in front of any child. And I heard this passage today in light of the disciples' limiting of who the legitimate exorcists are. So disciples, please hear me. Do not preemptively cause children to stumble by limiting their access to people who can drive out demons and who can offer a cup of cold water to drink. Don't cut off exorcists and assistants from the children. Instead, expand the children's access to those who care and can set free. And the consequences for being stumbling blocks to children by keeping them from cups of water and keeping them from the exorcists they need are severe. Jesus says to his 12, I'd rather you drown in the sea with a millstone around your neck than cause a child to stumble. Hyperbole, yes, but serious. This world needs far more exorcists, not less, for the sake of the children and for the sake of the present and for the sake of the future. So let's keep driving away demons and celebrating all people who do that. And let's replace all demonic presence with the, with the arriving presence of love. Thanks be to God. Amen.